Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I should note, going into this talk, that this is not a replacement for the talk I gave a couple of weeks ago on setting boundaries and stating needs, which is essential in core relationships to know how to uh, state clearly what we need to feel safe and be in any kind of uh, friendship or relationship with someone, as well as know for ourselves which actions, behavior, situations create a sense of vulnerability or uh, a situation where we no longer feel taken care of or seen or understood and knowing to, for ourselves, not to put ourselves, be very clear what the uh, conditions are that lead to uh, a felt sense of vulnerability. So this talk is more about <clears throat> situations that rise up, not regularly, but interactions with people uh, that uh, for a variety of different ways um, are very challenging. And so, uh, again, it's not meant to supplant. These techniques are not meant to supplant stating needs and setting boundaries in relationships. In fact, any ongoing relationship, we should be capable of uh, <clears throat> taking care of ourselves. Um, so before I jump into the some of the uh, underlying uh, psychological insights that will go into some of the practices. I just want to note up front that the Buddha had some very interesting strategies for dealing with very difficult people. Um, he tended to limit the topics that he would be willing to discuss to simply uh, the causes of suffering and the ways to diminish or essentially modulate, downmodulate our suffering and distress in life. And when people would try to push topics or trap him into talking about things that he wasn't prepared, he had excellent boundaries. He would uh, not answer. He would analyze why they were asking him a question that he would not, you know, that was clearly outside of his purview. Sometimes he would change the subject or just simply most often he would say, um, I don't talk about that. And so that's the very definition of a boundary is when we realize that some topic or some interaction is not safe and we just say, yeah, I'm not going to go there. Um, <clears throat> and there were occasions where the Buddha was confronted by downright unpleasant people. This was not surprising. In the Buddha's time, there were many, many different competing spiritual paths. The arrival of the Dharma was not exactly greeted with enthusiasm by other spiritual paths, Brahmins, Jain, Jain, uh, Jainists, I guess they were, uh, Jains. Just James. And uh, there was nihilists uh, of their time. There were uh, Epicureans and so forth. So there was a lot of competing 
worldviews, and very often they would be quite hostile. Uh, in one sutta, the great Honey Bowl Sutta, this guy named Dandapani carried this big threatening stick. It was very gruff and unpleasant. Goes up to the, B the Buddha and immediately challenges him and says, essentially, like, so what's this path? You know, rolling his eyes. What's this thing that you're teaching? Clearly, you know, wanting to get into it. And the Buddha responds, I teach a path where one doesn't have to quarrel with people picking a fight. <laughs> so that, and then Dandapani just gets angered and walks away, but the Buddha <coughs> avoids the interaction. In another, the Akosa Sutra, this is one of my favorite, a guy named Bharadaja, whose son has become a renunciate monk in the Buddha's path. And this is really bad news for Bharadaja because he wanted his son to take over the family business. He was a very, very wealthy merchant and he was really pissed off. So he goes to the Buddha and he just starts insulting him, just hurls insults, you know, basically calls him everything from like a interloper or, you know, somebody who's, you know, putting his nose in the business, he has no right, blah, blah, blah just hurls the insults, and then the Buddha just waits patiently for him to stop, and then when he does, the Buddha says, okay, can I ask you a question? And Bharadaja says, what? And he says, do you have friends <coughs> who ever visit you for dinner? <laughs> and Bharadaja is like still very angry. He goes, of course I do. And then the Buddha says, when your friends visit you for dinner, do you offer them food? And the guy goes, yes, of course I do. And then the Buddha said, well, if these people aren't hungry and they have no interest in eating, who owns the food? And Bharadaja says, well, I do, of course. If they don't accept my food, then it's mine. And the Buddha said, well, it so happens I have no appetite for your words nor any interest in them, so you own them and they're yours. And that was how he dealt with that. But he would ref resolutely refuse to debate people who were trying to essentially push their agenda onto him or trap him into a uh, essentially a conflict. <coughs> so let's put that aside and let's uh, talk about uh, the ways that we have at our disposal of down-regulating people who are in a state of emotional dysregulation. How do we do it? Well, we, I, I'd like to start out by noting that we like to believe that we are a rational species, that uh, times when we're irrational, that when we're triggered, activated, uh, agitated, um, that these are the, uh, the unusual situations and that uh, by the time we're adults, we have largely rational minds, and it's only extenuating circumstances that drop us out of logical perspectives of the world. But that's exactly the opposite of the case. Human beings are, uh, you could think of the, the structure of our capabilities as a, um, the earliest, most simple 
rudimentary structures in the brain, your brain stem, the medulla, and especially the amygdala, the oldest regions of your brain, determine whether you can be logical, rational, you can use the region of the brain known as the dorsal lateral, lateral that allows you to think in terms of long-term implications, whether you can use the dorsal medial that allows you to be empathetic with other people and care about different perspectives, or it, if there's ever a situation where you feel unsafe, which is generally the rule of thumb, we feel unsafe until we have actually created the, the conditions or spotted the cues that make us feel safe, most of the time we actually don't access the highest regions of the brain. Most of the time we're using regions that are associated with self-preservation, with short-term thinking, with acquisition of tools that will make our lives easier at all costs. We're not interested in actually long-term uh, well-being of self and others, relationships and so forth. That's a part of the brain that only is switched on when your nervous system and amygdala decides that you are safe. And it's actually a myth that we are actually a logical species. Almost all of our decisions are made by emotional structures that are by no means logical at all. So in safe states, once again, we can access what's called higher cortical functions of the brain, reason and so forth, exploration, uh, entertaining different perspectives. In danger states, which is our default state until we find safety cues that make us feel secure and less vulnerable, we will always prioritize self, short-term considerations, things that feel good immediately, and so forth. That's why children uh, and people who are in novel situations almost invariably revert to short-term uh, survival-based thinking and behaviors. So it's, it's not like someone who is, is dysregulated, who is angry, is, is, is frozen, is shut down, is, uh, is emotional, has somehow fallen out of logic. It means they haven't been able to raise up a, to a state of security that you have in many situations. And that's important to realize. There's not necessarily anything um, to view it as like something's going terribly wrong here is to uh, paint actually a, a not necessarily true picture of what's, uh, what happens. Now, when people become activated, they fall into two different states. One is called hypervigilance, which means they're anxious, they're searching for anything that they can to help them survive, they're restless, they're fidgety, they can't sit still, they uh, essentially have repetitive thoughts that they keep going back to. They speak very, very, very fast without any breathing. I know I do that, but that's just because I'm a Jew from the Lower East Side. Um, they, uh, they're prone to you know, extreme mood swings. They're impatient. And uh, basically, they cannot pause and listen very well. They find it very difficult to entertain any possibility 
that whatever they have risen in their life fixated on to being the most important concern it may be not that important um, the other state uh, is immobilize which is called essentially hypovigilance shutdown or you may have heard the term dissociation which all describes the same state it's when <clears throat> instead of going up into the sympathetic nervous system we go down into the ancient dorsal parasympathetic we can't form words we stare into space thinking becomes very difficult there's a sense of brain fog people are sluggish if you're with somebody who's been through a breakup or has lost somebody important to them or has suddenly experienced a a, a sudden real sense of rejection, you might notice that they seem, well, vacant. They're staring off into space. You can't connect with them easily. It's very difficult for them to pay attention. So um, in both cases, our sense of agency and reality are not um, actually um, in, by any means, they're off. They're what we do when we are uh, triggered either into hypervigilance or hypovigilance is we rely on very old scripts previously established perceptions that predate the interaction in the present so for somebody who is triggered by <clears throat> suddenly a, a fear of financial insecurity a sense that they're about to be abandoned in a relationship uh, triggered by a separation or a loss, triggered by um, possibly bad news, they will uh, fall back into perceptions that actually date back to earlier traumatic events from life. They will start to, if they found in their childhood that when they were worried and panicky, the only way they could get attention was by shouting, that's what they'll do. And if they only could get attention from certain kinds of people, they will only listen when and be capable of being downregulated when they connect with that kind of person. So for instance, if their father was almost emotionally always unavailable, but their mother came to their side and somehow helped them process, they will not be able to feel safe when they're with a man, when they're feeling triggered. They'll have to wait until they see a figure that closer matches the figure that is associated with emotion co-regulation for them. Um, so essentially we will fall back into pre really early perceptions. I'm alone, others are untrustworthy, or I have to um, shout to get heard, or maybe I can't deal, I have to shut down, that's the only way I can survive, or maybe the only way I can survive is be by becoming extremely self-reliant, disconnecting from others, finding a place where I'm alone and coping with it all by myself. But we will fall back into those perceptions or maladaptive coping strategies that helped us to survive, helped us survive our childhood. Now, <clears throat> when someone else is in this state, the most important thing to know is that the way we by and large rely on in our life to connect with people, to share information, to 
develop uh, coordinated plans. In essence, the some total ways that we generally rely on to make life, to process life and interact with other people, sail out the window. By which I mean trying to use language and logic with somebody who is triggered is almost invariably destined to make matters worse if we use the normal kind of logic. Trying to use disconfirming evidence with someone who is absolutely convinced after a breakup they'll never find love, good fucking luck. <laughs> yeah, good fucking luck saying, but you're, you're a wonderful person. They will, not, they will not be able to grasp it because when people, and this is really important to grasp, when people are triggered, the only thing they really want to communicate most of all is their affect, the emotional state of being that they're in. They are not actually capable or interested in processing somebody giving them the exact opposite. You know, you're going to be fine. Okay, you lost your job. There's going to be other jobs out there. You, you never have been homeless in your life. Sure, that might be the truth, but when someone is actually triggered in a panic attack, in a state of emotional dysregulation, is extremely sad after a breakup, is exceptionally depressed after the loss of a caregiver, is distraught after a setback that they've counted on, trying to use disconfirming evidence, which is what we normally do, we normally try to say, everything's going to be okay, that's actually not the approach. Because when people are in that state, what they want to know is that you have understood what they are experiencing. They're not looking for you to disconfirm what they're experiencing. They want you to confirm that you understand the amount of pain, distress, or agitation. So, <coughs> Uh, the left, our adult left hemispheric reliance on language and reason um, fails us, but fortunately we have at our disposal a tool that most of us are um, not using all the time uh, or use rarely, but is actually an exceedingly effective tool at emotionally down-regulating someone. And everybody, this works for pretty much everyone except for maybe sociopaths. But it doesn't, you know, you can't have everything. <laughs> so human beings are a socially mimicking species. Part of being a social species is that we uh, have what's called um, emotion contagion. We unconsciously, implicitly, which means below the level of awareness, read each other's body states and we are set to synchronize our body state to the person that we are with this is known as transference of emotion and all of therapy and human bonding is actually based on this when it comes time to choosing a partner you want to be with when it comes to choosing friends that are the ones that you really want to see the most, these are not the ones who are the smartest, the cleverest. I hope they're not. I hope you go by the ones who down-regulate your affect state, which means your nervous system goes from sympathetic back to homeostasis, where you can relax, you can breathe comfortably, 
you can settle in, you feel a warmth in your chest, you no longer are in the defended, sympathetic, mobilized state, nor are you in a shutdown state. We, the most important decisions we make are gravitating towards people who regulate us and everybody gets essentially emotionally influenced by the people they're with. The problem is sometimes we wind up with people who are always agitated, always stressed out, always panicking, or we are with people who are um, depressed, haven't worked through an attachment wound and are still maintain a level of what's called anhedonia where you're, there's no feeling of joy in their life. So <clears throat> as the work of Hatfield, Cochiopo, Lundquist, Dimber, Con I mean so many different effective neuroscientists show that one, we are more influenced by other people's nonverbal cues that their state of being than we are by our own pre-existing moods. So if you go into a room and you are, you know, in a tranquil place, but everybody is anxiously tapping their feet, moving quickly and jumpily, you know, looking about, it's in our species evolutionary programming to no longer be tranquil but to adapt the affect states of those around us. Why? Well, think of our past. If it, you were, uh, we were all in our evolutionary past, hunter-gatherers, we would be in a clan of six or seven people of the entirety of our life. And when we came back from gathering food, if everybody around us was agitated and distressed, it meant that we would immediately have to be on guard because it meant that people were anticipating a life-threatening event and you wouldn't wait, your body, your right hemisphere would put you into a survival mode. But in our past, on the other hand, if you had had a scary experience and you came back to the hearth and hearth, what is it, hearth, hearth? I don't know, I've, I've just read that word. I've never ever said it aloud. <laughs> I know it's a thing, but you should never in a talk say aloud a word that you've only read. Uh, but anyway, we go back to you know where people are gathered around the fire and everybody's relaxed and comfortable. It was in your interest that you would downregulate very quickly to a state of homeostasis and relax because it would not be in your long-term interest if you stayed producing cortisol and stayed vulnerable in a state of th stress when you were actually now safe. So we are, and in fact, for the bulk of human history, we didn't use language to communicate, we used our emotions to communicate. It was only roughly out of our 200,000 years as a species, it was only roughly about 40,000 years ago that the rudiments of language started to develop. So the bulk of our species history, we communicated through emotions and we influenced each other through our emotions. With the development of the left hemisphere and its priority with a language we are less and less aware of our affect states in our bodies. But they are incredible tools to deactivate a conflict or a situation. In My work is not only in counseling people one-on-one, -on -one, but I've done a lot of work 
Um, for the last 11 years, I've been a visiting teacher at a hospice training organization. I've done a lot of hospice work. And so in my work, I am very often around people who are in a great state of distress. And the first thing I never, I never do, actually, is tell them it's going to be okay. Because in many situations, one, I don't know that. And if I try to tell someone that it's going to be okay, they know that I don't know that. And worse, what I'm telling them is that their feelings are wrong. When I tr if you try to tell someone what they are feeling is not true. What somebody who's in a state of distress wants first is there to be a degree of what's known as mirroring, where you essentially indicate visually that you get it, that they're sad, that they're frightened, that they're overwhelmed, that they're pissed off, whatever. You just visualize it. You just say, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, this is, this sucks. And then from that, we <clears throat> can go through all of the tools that begin the process of down-regulating them. It's the same thing that happens throughout our childhood. If we have secure attachment as a child when we're distressed, we cry out to the mother. And the first thing the mother does if she wants to have a secure child is she doesn't laugh when the child's crying or frightened. She goes like, oh, I'm doing a terrible thing. <laughs> you know, oh my goodness, that's so scary. But then what she does, the second part, is she does what's called, so mirroring is where you you indicate non-verbally that you get it. Then marking is where you indicate that it's going to be a right, but not through words, but by changing your expression so that you start talking to them in a way that is not disconfirming their emotional state, but simply engages with them. So a couple, before we jump into the specific tools, um, it's worth noting that all individuals are essentially uh, susceptible to emotion contagion. Um, they all, we all read each other's nonverbal cues. Two, some emotions are more contagious than others, especially intense emotional expressions. Fear happens to be a very, very contagious and very, very strong emotion. And it can actually, <clears throat> if we're not careful when we're with somebody who's terrified, we can become anxious ourselves. There are, however, we are all gifted with a way to make sure that when we're trying to emotionally regulate someone else, that we don't instead become dysregulated by them. Um, the stronger the other's emotional state, the less we should ever rely on point-by-point -point responses and focus on establishing all the nonverbal cues that create a sense of emotional connection. Um, situation studies show where there are many possible outcomes. People in those situations are far more emotionally susceptible than even in the rest of their life where they're already pretty emotionally susceptible. What does that mean? If you're in a waiting, uh, hospital waiting room waiting to take a test, that's kind of scary. Because there's so many possible outcomes to that situation. Studies have found if you sit next to someone who is in a state of fear and distress, 
that you are very liable to become as distressed as they are very quickly. On the other hand, if you sit with someone who's calm and confident, you will be malleable in that direction. Because the more variables, the more unknowns, the more we look unconsciously to other people to guide us what to think and how to feel. <coughs> so let's talk about the tools that help us survive unpleasant, difficult, challenging, and conflictual interactions. The first and most profoundly important tool that I use throughout um, all of my work is keeping myself, my body relaxed. Now, throughout this talk, while I've been talking with you, I've actually been able to check in with my stomach and make sure that it's soft. And I can check in with my shoulders and make sure that they're not tight, that they're relaxed enough and that my, my chest isn't too close. And I can, if I want, I can even check in on my out-breath and make sure that it's long enough. And I give talks, unfortunately. I tend to, but when I'm doing counseling with people, I'm constantly making sure I'm breathing out and that the exhalations are really long. So in a interaction with somebody who's in a state of distress, the first most important thing is look for the markers that your sympathetic nervous system is not engaged and keeping it that way. The way to do that is again, opening up the chest, softening the belly, long exhalations. It's a technique, three markers that will keep you from being pulled into someone else's emotional state. If you try to tell yourself it'll be okay or that you know this is not happening to you you will very quickly be dysregulated by them but if you internally become aware of your body and that doesn't mean you're abandoning your friend or the person who's agitated because i can do this in every interaction in my life i can check to make sure that those key areas of my body that are associated with homeostasis remain in place so number two maintaining easy eye contact what the fuck is easy eye contact easy eye contact is where we check in we make eye contact at certain points in the conversation don't maintain eye contact throughout that's called staring and that will make somebody become even more dysregulated don't look away all the time that will make them feel abandoned and rejected Easy eye contact is where we naturally look at people's eyes when we've finished an idea and when we're about to start a new one. That's it. Every time someone has started a new idea or has finished one, make eye contact then. That lets them know that you've heard what they've said and that you intend to continue listening in the future. It's, in, it's impossible to overestimate how important easy eye contact is in down-regulating somebody's state of being. Another is not only for us opening our chest, but signaling as wide and open body position <coughs> is essential because when your chest is open, you're, rather than like this, you're signaling that you're open, that you're not going anywhere, that you're relaxed, that you are uh, present. 
It's important not to sit directly in front of someone. I never do that. When I sit uh, in counseling, I always make sure that I'm at an angle. I'm not sitting side by side or at a 45 degree angle, but I'm sitting at an off angle because very often people from early uh, emotional wounds from childhood associate somebody sitting right directly in front of them as those times where they were being scolded or punished or being told off by a parent or a teacher or by, uh, by an adult. So sitting slightly at an angle, again, breathing slowly, open chest signals to them that you're present, that you're relaxed, that you're open. Now, if somebody's really, really anxious around you, they've been triggered, they're feeling very unsafe, they're having a panic attack, the most important thing to do is breathe visibly for them. Don't make a show of it, but just enough <laughs> that you are, if you breathe and emphasize the long out-breath, over time they will start doing that too, and when they start breathing longer, they will actually down-regulate the sympathetic nervous system. Emphasize we when we talk to somebody who's having a panic attack. I'm here, we'll get through this, we'll deal, this is difficult, but I'm here, how can I make you feel? We put the sense that somebody's, when people are in panic attacks, the most important underlying factor is generally that they feel alone. And so using we statements, this is tough, but I'm here, we'll deal with it, you know, we'll find a way to work with this. Not dismissing the panic, but focusing on the togetherness involved. Repeat back to them the fact that you understand what they're trying to get across. If they're overwhelmed, if they are feeling that they're, you know, something's not going to work out that they've depended on, just repeat that back. Don't deny it, just, I get it. You're feeling that, the, you know, this, uh, this project is over, that this uh, thing you planned is done, that this relationship is not going to work out, whatever. Just repeat it back. And that even if you can indicate the, the gravity of the emotions that are feeling, it sounds really, really hard. And I'm here. And together we'll figure out how to move forward. That's all we do. If somebody's depressed and shut down, we take the person to a quiet, safe space. It's very important to, when somebody's shut down, to get them away from external overstimulation. To get somebody out of shutdown dissociation, you have to make them feel that they're not overly stimulated. You get them to a quiet place, hopefully with not too many people talking loudly, dimmer lights, you talk slowly, and as simply as possible. And you, if it's appropriate in that situation, give them something that they can touch and hold on to. A cup of tea, uh, a sweater, a piece of, you know, fabric, anything. Sensory contact helps people gently come out of dissociation. So the more objects you give them to hold or touch, the more they will become Essentially, they'll upregulate. If somebody's really, really angry, never refute the points or defend. I know this is hard. It's in our programming 
to say, but I did call you, or but I'm not always late, or you know, I'm you know, it's important not to fall into the tendency to even if you think that the person is accusing you of something that's completely insane, the human tendency to debate, refute, defend when somebody is really angry, when they're just disappointed, yes, of course, point by point, talking, okay, but here's my perspective. But when they when somebody is really triggered, don't. Just essentially of also avoid any global statements. Why are you always so angry? <laughs> Why are you always shouting? Why are you always building, you know, a mountain or, or out of a molehill? Also just want to reemphasize that if you ever feel unsafe or abused in an interaction, just obviously prioritize your safety, your emotional well-being. Uh, there's times when we can just feel ourselves immediately going into a vulnerable state. And if you feel that's happening, the most important thing to say always is, I can see that this is important. It deserves a real conversation. I can't talk about it now. Let's find another time. Chances are the person that when you reconnect with them will, because you've set aside a time, will not go in because people heighten their act, their emotions to be seen. They become louder. They become more aggressive because they are bringing old scripts from their childhood that they will not be seen unless they yell or, you know, gesticulate or become aggressive. If you can't get away, if they're demanding the conversation and for some reason you feel obligated to continue it, no <clears throat> shared goals. <coughs> Don't debate to simply, okay, I hear that you're saying that you feel that I'm not doing as much as you in the household that I'm not, you know, or that I'm, that I, you know, I don't clean up enough or the opposite, that I'm uh, not making enough plans or whatever. Just repeat back and then state a shared goal. Listen, we both want this to be a really enjoyable household to live in. We're roommates. We want this to be a comfortable place. I would like that to be, let's see how we can get this done together. Again, we're not, we're not debating, we're not refuting, because at the end of the time, at the end of it, when somebody is angry, just like when somebody's depressed, they're not, what they're trying to communicate is their affect, their state of being. They want to be seen for what they're experiencing. The most important thing to do is to indicate that we get and that we understand what they're communicating. People are born, essentially as a social species, we're born wanting to be seen and understood. And when that happens, we immediately relax. So all of these are very, very difficult tools to implement because they go against our fundamentally ingrained habits by the time we're adults to essentially rely, overly rely on language, overly rely on logic, overly rely on reason, overly rely on point by point, you know, essentially uh, 
presenting our point of view. It's understandable that we have these ingrained habits because in most interactions where people feel safe together, we can use those tools. And those tools are ingrained through our later education and through workplaces. But when it comes to dealing with the dysregulated, we actually have to put aside the ingrained and use tools that are very often unfamiliar, but actually are effective. And that means keeping yourself relaxed, repeating back rather than debating, listening, not interrupting, creating a safe place where somebody can express their affect and acknowledging the emotional state. If it's too much, set a time to talk about it in the future. And by all means, through nonverbal cues of relaxing yourself, keeping an open body and eye contact, indicate that you are present to them. <sighs> so that's the talk. And now we're going to actually put some practice into place. Michael, you wouldn't know how to speed up the fan, would you? Thank you. It feels like it's at a desultory speed. Like. Uh, do you think it would, it would, I don't think it's going to cool the room down in the next, like, so we could just use the fan, just put it on. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, the non-desultory setting, the, the uh, courageous and uh, can-do setting. I already feel something. Yeah. That's all right. In, in most Buddhist countries, they're very hot and sort of clammy. So I'm just putting you through the... Uh, <coughs> so... Just relaxing, finding a very comfortable posture. Don't uh, try to uh, think your way into a balanced posture because thinking is predominantly, abstract thinking is predominantly left hemispheric, but actually all the bulk of the synaptic connections to your body are right hemispheric. So the only way to get a good posture is by feeling your way in. So sometimes I balance, bobble back and forth, right and left like a top, and then I just allow my body to come to a complete stop. And then the only, uh, <coughs> the only uh, adjustment I make is I lift my chin up like about an inch or two just to prevent my head from slouching in front of my chest. And slouching is kind of the single one thing to avoid in, in your practice. Just put that little bit of effort to keep your head looking up like you're looking at the top of a building. start by just taking a few series of breaths that are an example of how to uh, 
uh, immediately or very quickly, I should say, uh, incline the autonomic nervous system towards homeostasis, so, which is the goal. Um, one, just take a nice full in-breath through the nose and squinch the muscles in the face. And then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, just release the jaw. Unfurrow the brow, like smooth it out, like it's a tablecloth. And uh, encourage the eyes behind the eyelids to settle if your eyes settle become relaxed don't bounce about about then what will happen is your mind will follow the optical nerve actually is influential And so we're relaxing the cranial muscles. So try to uh, pull the corners of the mouth far apart and so that the, the mouth is in a sort of, it's not by any means in a smile, but it's not pinched in any way. And then any tendency to clench, just try to override, release any tightness there if you can. So a nice full in-breath again through the nose and lifting the shoulders up and then rotating back to open up your chest and then drop with a very long out breath, drop the uh, shoulders, the arms. An open chest engages <coughs> a vagal break, which releases acetylcholine, slows down your heart rate, reduces blood pressure, and more importantly, if your chest's open, it means you're not under any threat. An open chest sends a signal up through the insula, to the right amygdala, basically informing the midbrain that we're not under attack because if we were our chest wouldn't be open and spacious it would be tight and then for the third breath breathing in and expand your belly like you're pulling the air directly into your belly allowing it to fully expand so it's bloated and then as you breathe out a nice release so the belly feels soft again. <coughs> and so set an intention to incline your breathing to abdominal breathing, which is 
again, a very useful tool. Um, when we're under attack or feel unsafe, vulnerable, we breathe in largely using the chest, the diaphragm. When we're gulping air, we feel the breath most in the chest. When you're in a safe situation, when you're lying down on a couch, reading a magazine or listening to music that's peaceful or watching a show that's not too uh, not a horror movie maybe, but just a relaxing show, you'll find that the most present movement in the body is actually in the belly. So when you're actually in the, the ventral parasympathetic, the relaxed, the breath is most felt by the expansion and release in the belly. So incline and bring your awareness to the breath there making the exhalations as long as possible. The longer the exhalation, the more we switch out. When we're in the hypervigilance, stressed out, anxious, fidgety, the in-breaths have more energy duration. But when we're relaxed and calm, it's the out-breath. So breathing into the belly, long exhalations, open chest. So we'd like to cultivate um, the state that we're in when we start a very long vacation. and There's no place we'd rather be than where we are when we've arrived at our destination. All the need to figure out, plan, solve, or rehash experiences that have happened back in our daily life are no longer of interest. One of the oldest sayings in the Dharma, nowhere to go, nothing to do, nothing to figure out, nothing to achieve. Everything we need is right here. And the only thing we want to do is fully land in our life, which means not allowing our mind to race ahead of us to another place in the future. And the way we do that is by again and again bringing awareness back from thoughts about other places, past or future concerns or fantasies or memories. That we just find the sensation again and again of the breath. In the belly. You can use any sounds as well to keep you grounded in the present. And if 
It's really difficult to stay with the breath. You can count inhalations and exhalations. One on the in, two on the out, three on the next inhalation, four on the next exhalation. When you get to five, this is seating in breath and start counting back down. Four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So we're counting from one to five, up and down. If finally you don't want or you don't find counting to be soothing enough, just repeat a very simple phrase in your mind with each exhalation. I love you, keep going. Or may I be happy, peaceful free of stress. Most of, most important when your mind does wander and you realize that that's something to feel good about, not become frustrated by. Each time you awaken from a thought, it's a small version of awakening. And it allows you the opportunity to bring to ingrain a new circuit that brings you back home to your body.
So at this point, I invite you to visualize either from an actual experience or from entirely your imagination, a volatile situation. Imagine an individual who is exhibiting signs of distress or significant agitation. Create a situation where you are with this person. Try to imagine that you're sitting slightly closer than you'd like and see if you can imagine being the presence of this person exhibiting their affects in a really almost overwhelming way. If this is a real recent experience comes to mind, use that. If not, just visualize something that would be an unpleasant interaction. And then bring awareness to your chest and keep your chest really open and spacious. And feel the breath filling up your belly and then releasing and softening it, softening. And long, smooth exhalations, staying present looking in the mind at this triggering situation, but practicing keeping yourself in a homeostatic state. Softening the belly opening the chest, softening the eyes. If it's a real situation that has happened and the person wasn't angry, they were sad or frightened. See if you can empathize with some of their distress. Empathize doesn't mean identifying with that feeling or becoming, but just finding some shared sense that 
we've known this state in our own life, allowing ourselves to touch into some of the same feeling. But still, we keep ourselves from becoming sad or anxious or frustrated or depressed by softening the belly, keeping the chest open, long exhalations. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bell and just take your time when you hear the sound. Just when you open up your eyes, don't look around the room at first. Just try to integrate sight back into awareness in such a way that you can share sensations of the body with sight and sound so that we don't just lose contact with our bodies as we move on into the rest of the evening. We bring embodied awareness with us. <laughs> 